So John 3, 22 to 36. This is God's word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. A reminder that one of the major themes through the Gospel of John so far has been this idea of heaven being revealed to those who are on earth. And John is using heaven, John the Gospel writer, is using heaven in a particular way. Uh, we shouldn't solely think of heaven as this ethereal location uh, that is solely future-oriented, though, of course, Heaven is described as our future inheritance, but we should also think of heaven, particularly in the way John is using it here in chapter three, as the ultimate place of God's presence. It's actually God being revealed to us. So in verse 31, in the back end of that verse there, he who comes from heaven is above all. It's this idea of the one coming from heaven in Jesus is actually revealing God's presence to us because he is God in the flesh. Just like the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God has then verse 14 of chapter one uh, become flesh and dwelt among us. It's this idea of God's presence, the heavenly one coming to reveal what is true and what is light and what is life from heaven to those who dwell on earth. And what we constantly see with these themes being drawn out is that heaven is not something that we ascend to. It's not something that we achieve. It must be something that condescends to us. It must be something that is revealed to us. We see this in that verse I just mentioned. The word which was in the beginning with God and was God Eventually, he becomes flesh and dwells among us, and that's how we behold his glory. 
because he has condescended. This is not about an intellectual ascent to then achieve heavenly wisdom or understanding. It is about the one from heaven condescending to the lowest of the low in order to reveal what is true and what is light and what is life to us. And this is what sets Christianity apart. And also within Christianity, this is probably what sets a right understanding of God's sovereignty apart from every other stream and certainly from every other religion, where if you imagine being in the ocean, and I use this example with the new birth in chapter three, if you imagine being in the ocean, you get caught in a rip, you're struggling, and most religions and even some streams of Christianity like to think of God's salvation as him tossing out a rope and you see it and then you have the choice. You're still conscious to be able to choose to swim a little bit to it. Sure, you're not going to be able to get all the way to the one who threw the rope without his help, but you can at least get to the rope and then he'll pull you in. A better example really is you're in the ocean, you get caught in a rip, You're struggling, you drown, you're dead on the bottom of the ocean floor, that's it. And God in his mercy comes in and picks you up off the bottom of the ocean floor. He washes you clean, he breathes life into you, he makes you alive so that you can see his majesty and his glory as the one who redeemed you. And that's what we clearly see through the Gospel of John. The one from heaven has to come down and reveal himself to the lowest of the low. And he does that purely out of his sovereign mercy. We do nothing to achieve it. We are dead and we relish in the fact that he has made us alive in order to see his majesty and his redemptive work. Now, although it is God's sovereign mercy in bringing us to life, there is still a responsibility upon us who have been born again. There is still a responsibility upon us to respond to that. And this is part of John's purpose where he uses, if you'll notice, he uses a lot of these dualistic themes of uh, life and death, light and darkness, um, heaven and the world. They're sort of in opposition to each other most of the time. And what he's doing is really impressing upon us the need to continuously confess our allegiance to one or the other, to the light of man or to stay in darkness, to the one who has life or to stay in death. This is impressing upon us the need to confess our allegiance. The purpose of these stories as we go through the Gospel of John is for John to basically make it a no-brainer for us to show that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything else in the world so that when we are faced with what we see here, it's a no-brainer to say, of course I am following Jesus. Of course I'm following the life. Of course I'm following the light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So as we come across these stories, we should remember that famous passage from John 20, 31, that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All of these stories are written so that they would strengthen our belief in Jesus as the Christ and confess again our allegiance to him. This passage today must continue to impress this 
upon us. Now, this is like, if you imagine a plane ride, sometimes sermons are a bit like a plane ride. We have the takeoff, sometimes it's a bit bumpy, but eventually you get up. And right now we're kind of at like the 30,000 foot. This is the overarching theme, this idea of what John's trying to do in his gospel to show Jesus as the one who is superior to everything else so that we would believe in him and we would confess our allegiance. This is like the overarching theme. We're hovering at 30,000 feet. And today we will continue to travel at that so that we can see the overarching theme, but then we will take it down to ground level. And I don't know if you've ever been on a plane before where it's uh, tried to land, it couldn't, so it had to go back up again. That's kind of what we're gonna do. We're gonna go to ground level and then we're gonna finish from verse 31 by going back up to keep in mind this overarching theme and then we will land. So right now, we're keeping in mind this overarching theme of heaven being revealed to us by God condescending, by his sovereign mercy. And our response to that is to continuously confess our allegiance to Christ, to know that he is superior to everyone and everything, and therefore our whole lives are centered around him and his glory. So let's look at our passage today as we continue our plane ride. We're taken into the Judean countryside from verse 22 to 24. And we read that Jesus and his disciples head in there. They remain. Jesus is baptizing. But we know from chapter four that Jesus didn't actually baptize, but his disciples were baptizing, which you assume is um, a similar reason that Paul tried not to baptize so that no one would think they had the special baptism of Jesus. Uh, but rather Jesus allows his disciples to baptize. Notice that John uh, the Baptist heads to Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. A quick note on baptism being by immersion. We won't spend too much time on that. In fact, that'll be it, but there we go. A lot of water is needed to baptize. John the Baptist is there. Verse 25, we read that it's discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Remember purification, that's the same word that we have all the way back in chapter two, when Jesus is at the wedding. And in verse six, we read of chapter two, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. That's the first and last time we've had the word purification in the gospel of John. So purification is to do with the ceremonial washings that were present in Judaism for people who were either unclean or who had committed a sin, or even for priests entering into their service, they had to go through this process of purification. And this is what the discussion is about between John's disciples, that's John the Baptist's disciples, and a Jew. And initially, if you read this passage, it might seem odd as to why it is about purification when you read what they talk about. Notice that afterwards, basically the, the disciples, and this could be either the disciples and the Jew or just the disciples, they come to John the Baptist and their conversation is around why uh, Jesus and his followers are baptizing more people than John. And then John's response is to then say, well, nothing can be given unless it's from heaven and clearly Jesus is given from heaven. And so of course people need to go to him. And I'm just the bride, um, I'm just the, the best man and the bridegroom is now here. So he's got to increase. And initially it doesn't seem like it's uh, very clearly about 
purification. And it could be that we missed the discussion. The discussion was there between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And then this was what flowed out of it. But I think that actually this is very much related to purification. If you'll notice a few things, firstly, that purification is the Jewish ceremonial washings, which baptism, as we understand it, is necessarily linked to that. And I won't go into detail on this because it's probably a side point to the sermon, but it is important for us to understand that baptism doesn't just come out of nowhere. There's a whole Jewish uh, system that maybe it wasn't understood uh, primarily as baptism, but rather purification or washings. And there is a, a development in the New Testament of baptism, which actually flows out of this sense of being purified by water. And we have evidence of actually the priests entering into their service under the Old Testament, going through the purification um, process, and they actually had to enter into baths to then enter into their service of ministry, which is interesting when you think about the New Testament application of us as a royal priesthood entering into our service. But that's a side point just to know that baptism is very much linked to purification. It doesn't come out of nowhere. I would say more linked to that than to circumcision. It's more linked to this idea of the washing, the cleansing that was present there. The second thing to note is that there is already a theme of purification that John the Gospel writer is developing through this account. So remember the background of this in chapter two, where we have the first explicit mention of purification. It's at the wedding. At the wedding, Jesus turns water into wine and wine is the symbol of this new age. He converts the water into wine which is the symbol of the new covenant in a sense where wine was always used to be this um, idea of the new age coming in, the new covenant where God's people would be cleansed and purified. And in that passage, Jesus very clearly demonstrates that he is far superior to the old Jewish rites of purification. It's interesting that he takes the water that were out of the stone jars of purification and transforms it, which a bit of the symbolism in that is Jesus very clearly asserting his superiority over the old purification system. He's transforming it all. And then we move on to the next event in chapter two, which is Jesus cleansing the temple or purifying the temple. He purifies it of all of the sin and wickedness that was in there, of all of the immorality and things that should not have been going on in the temple. Jesus purifies it. So we have in chapter two, Jesus demonstrating that he is far superior to the Jewish purification system and that he is far superior to the Jewish religious system in the temple. Jesus is purifying it. He's coming to bring cleansing. So we already have this background theme of purification. And now we have this debate about purification that immediately follows the new birth, which interestingly in the New Testament is described by Paul as the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which you clearly see this idea of purification there. And now John the Baptist's answer, after verse 26, where the people come and they say to John, basically, hey, he's getting way more followers than you. What's going on here? 
And John the Baptist's answer is a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And then he goes on to talk about how Christ as the bridegroom, as the promised uh, groom, the promised husband of God's people, he's here and he must increase. So I think John the Baptist is following the same trajectory that we have already seen, which is to show that Jesus is far superior to all of the purification laws and religious practices. And therefore, John's response, notice that it's less concerned with finer details of purification and more concerned with simply pointing to the fact that the one who was going to truly purify God's people is here and he has to increase. He has to be the one. This is what John the Baptist would say. This is what my whole baptism was pointing to, this time of purification. My baptism was one of repentance, which is to turn you to the coming Messiah, who is the one who would truly purify his people. All of the Jewish purification laws were pointing to this moment where Jesus as the Christ would truly purify, would truly cleanse his people. And it's happening now. Now, this is the sort of overarching, remember, this is like the 30,000 foot um, background to this passage. Let's, let's bring the plane down and just look a bit closer at John's answer, because there's some astounding applications to his response in this. So from verse 27, John says, a person can't receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven, which is John saying, I haven't manufactured any of my followers. They were given from heaven. My ministry is one that is given from heaven. We can't receive anything unless it's given from heaven. So those who came to me came because it was given to them. And now God, who is in heaven, is very clearly drawing people to the promised Messiah. And who am I to stand in the way? Nothing can happen unless it is given from heaven, which is why in verse 28, he says, you remember, I told you guys, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. People aren't going to be following me forever. They're going to be pointed to the Messiah. I'm just the one who prepares the way. John the Baptist knows that his purpose was always just to lay the red carpet for the Messiah to walk down. He prepares the way. And now that the Messiah is here, John the Baptist uh, slowly drifts off into insignificance in comparison to the Messiah, and he is thrilled about it. He is joyful about it. His joy is literally being filled up to the brim. Now, there are some wonderful lessons in humility that we see here in the ministry of John the Baptist. And to see this, let's just make sure we understand the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. Remember how he identifies himself way back in chapter one. When people come to him and they say, who are you? John the Baptist, after, after denying who uh, they think he is, he identifies himself as a voice in the wilderness, crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. He is a voice. His whole life is wrapped up in declaring and proclaiming to people that the Messiah is coming, that they must turn and they must be ready because he is here. So he is a voice. And now he says in verse 29, 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I wonder why he says voice here. Don't you think it would seem more logical to say when you see the bridegroom, you rejoice. But he says, when you hear his voice, I've heard his voice and now I am rejoicing. I believe John the Baptist wants us to clearly see that his race is very quickly drawing to a close and his time as a voice is finishing. And therefore he is thrilled that people are rightly going to the bridegroom. And just think about this, his, his identity, the way he identifies himself is as a voice. And now there is another voice, not just any voice, a much louder, much more prominent, much more significant voice that is going to basically almost completely drown out the voice of John the Baptist. And he's saying, fantastic. There's another voice here. The whole purpose of my voice was for this voice to come. And now I can just fade away and drift off into insignificance in comparison to this voice. And just think about this reaction. It is the total opposite of how most people would react. Think about this from a human perspective. John's self-identity should be crushed. He's a voice. He's a voice in the wilderness. That's his, what his whole life is about. And now there is another much more uh, significant, much better voice here. And his time is finished. Usually his identity would be crushed, but instead he rejoices in the fact that his voice is now almost completely drowned out by the fact that the Messiah is here. The superior voice is here. And not only is he not crushed by this, but notice what he says. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete or complete. The word is full. My joy is full now that this voice is here. John the Baptist finds his sense of fulfillment in the fact that Christ is the voice who we were always meant to hear, and now he must increase. He must continue to beam out throughout the world, and John is very happy to drift off, and in a few years will have his head chopped off and will spend the rest of eternity glorying in what God has done. What an incredible man, and there is a simple but very profound application for us in this. If you want to have a secure identity, if you want to have a secure identity, make sure your identity is wrapped up in making much of Christ. Make sure your identity is wrapped up in God's purposes. Make sure it is wrapped up in desiring God to be glorified rather than you. In contrast to this, if you want to have an unstable and easily crushed identity, make sure it is wrapped up in making yourself great. If you want to have an unstable and easily crushed identity, then make sure it is connected to what other people think of you. If you want to have an unstable and easily crushed identity, make sure it is tied to self-preservation. Make sure you really care about your image and about preserving your reputation. Then your identity will be crushed. These things will only ever result in grief confusion 
and frustration. And John the Baptist here gives us the antidote to this. John the Baptist has none of this. His identity is not self-preserving in any way. His identity is totally God-preserving. It is totally wrapped around God's purposes, God being glorified. His identity is not found in what he does for his sake, but in what he does for God's sake. It's not found in what John the Baptist does for John the Baptist's sake, but what John the Baptist does for God's sake. And therefore, if God decides to continue doing that thing through a different means, John is thrilled about it. His identity was never tied to what he was doing for God for his sake. Sometimes we can have noble ideas, noble desires to do things for God, and then we get frustrated when someone else is doing that. It's like the people who are praying for revival and nothing ever really happens at their church and they're frustrated when it's happening somewhere else. And you very quickly realize they were never actually praying for revival. They were praying for their name to be revived, for their name to be great. That's an unstable and easily crushed identity. John's identity is wrapped up in God preservation. It is wrapped up in God's glory. And we have to fight against this. We have to really fight against having an unstable and easily crushed identity because our culture conditions us as the water we swim in to directly attach our identity to us as individuals and how we feel. People have probably heard about expressive individualism before. This is the sort of water we swim in as a society where people not only have to identify by what they feel, but they have to make sure that they are expressing that and people are validating that or else they feel oppressed or crushed. So it's why if you don't affirm LGBT rights, regardless of whether you have good character toward that person, the very fact that you don't affirm LGBT rights would, have, would make someone who is affirming in that feel like you are oppressing them and crushing them because their identity is totally wrapped up in expressing themselves as an individual and they have chosen to identify as this type of person. So it's a fickle, unstable identity. It's very easily crushed. And we are not immune to this idea of expressive individualism. We are not immune to this in the church. The same expressive individualism that has given birth to sexual identity and gender identity is the same expressive individualism that gives birth to church shopping. Finding a church that's right for our needs, the right music we want, the right demographics, the right people who are interested in rock climbing because I like rock climbing, all of these sorts of things. We identify as individuals and we need to feel affirmed when we continue to express these desires. It's the same expressive individualism that leaves people thinking they can follow Jesus and not be intimately involved in a single community of God's people. They can just float around from place to place because they're just going to get what they need rather than what other people need and rather than what God desires. So we're not immune to this in the church. We can't look at some of the absurdities of how this plays itself out in secular society and not fail to realize that there are really unhealthy uh, realities of this that affect us in the church. They affect our discipleship. And back to the text here, John the Baptist gives us the antidote 
to this. And it is to have your identity completely wrapped up in God's purposes, which in simple terms is to take the Westminster Confession and say, it is to have your identity wrapped up in glorifying God and enjoying him forever. To be completely wrapped up in the cause of Christ. And this is the most stable identity because in a world of instability, in a world of constant cultural change and people feeling crushed where the glory of man, as the word of God says, is like the flower or grass of the field that just withers away. The only thing that will stand is the word of God. So base your identity and base your life around the word of God, around his glory. It's like you want, you want a winning ticket, then bet on God being glorified and make your whole life concerned with that. It is a recipe for success. It is assured to make your whole life around the glory of God and make sure your whole life is revolving around that. So this is what we can learn from John the Baptist, a stable and secure identity that is completely wrapped up in what he does for God's sake, in God's purposes, rather than for ourselves. Now we have John the Gospel writer from verse 31. So John the Baptist has finished uh, talking. In verse 31, we have John the Gospel writer giving his summarizing thoughts. And he here takes us back up. The plane now comes back up a bit higher to just keep in mind this overarching theme of heaven being revealed to us. But then John will land the plane and give us the ground level application of how we have to respond to this. So look at verse 31. John says, he who, is, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. I believe this is a contrast to the ministry of John the Baptist. So earth here is not necessarily in a negative way. It's just saying that he who speaks in an earthly way, like John the Baptist, like the prophets, uh, they are different to the heavenly one, to the one who utters the words of God by the Spirit without measure. Even as great a teacher as John the Baptist was, and he's referred to as the greatest among men, we know that uh, he is, compared to the one who is in heaven, he is far less. Uh, the one who is from heaven, that is Jesus, who is revealing God to us, is far more significant, far more superior than John the Baptist. As great as he is. And here... We are meant to be reminded of the new birth. We're meant to be reminded of what John says in chapter 3. So notice that verse 31 here says, He who comes from above. That's the same word as when Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born, the ESV has born again. But it's the same word, unless one is born from above. So I think it's meant to remind us of the sovereign work of God, just like the new birth can only come from above. Likewise, he who comes from above is above all. You don't ascend to this. It's a sovereign work of God. It must come from above. And in Jesus, we have the one from above 
revealing himself to the lowest of the low. And as the heavenly one reveals himself, he does so to a people who continue to reject him. So we see this in verse 32. We read, he, so this is the one from heaven, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. We'll come back to that. Yet no one receives his testimony. Here we have this common picture of widespread rejection. No one receives his testimony except for a faithful remnant. The very next verse, verse 33, whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal that God is true. This is the same idea that we saw in chapter one, where from the end of verse um, 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. So this idea of widespread rejection, no one receives him, no one receives his testimony, but then there are those who do receive his testimony. Then there are those who do receive him. And we know very clearly from chapter one, John elaborates on those who do receive him. And he says, they are those who have been born, not of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but born of God. Those are the ones who receive him. Likewise, those who receive the testimony of Jesus have been awakened to the majesty of God. Jesus will go on to give this theme later on, particularly chapter six. He says in verse 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. No one can come to me unless it is given by the father. So we have this clear theme of a sovereign God revealing himself. There is widespread rejection, but in God's mercy, he still comes to those who reject him in Jesus. And there are those who receive his testimony. And under this theme of a sovereign God who is revealing himself to us, we have this picture of the beautiful unity between Father, Son and Spirit. This is a a wonderful theme that we see here. Notice in verse 32, uh, we read, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. What is it that he has seen and heard? This is Jesus testifying to what he has seen and heard. I believe it is speaking of the intimate relationship that existed between Father, Son and Spirit before all eternity. He speaks of what he has seen and heard. Now the Son is revealing the Father's will to us because they are one. This is describing a unity. It's like Jesus will go on to say throughout the Gospel of John in John 8, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. He says, you speak of what you you have not seen. I speak of what I have seen from my father or in John 12, 49. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given a commandment, what to say and what to speak. The father gives me a commandment. I speak everything that he has told me to, everything that I have seen because we are one. The man Jesus speaks everything as though it is the father speaking. It is the complete authority of God. This is also what verse 34 is talking about, where we read, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus speaks the words of his father because they are absolutely united. It's why he can say to Philip, when Philip says, show us the father. And Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. We are one. 
It is in contrast to the prophets of old who spoke the word of God. They spoke in a limited way, as great as they were. They spoke in a limited way. They had a particular appointment, a particular purpose. But Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, is speaking the word of God fully and completely in the spirit of God without measure, without any limitation. So therefore, verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Everything. There is a wonderful unity between father, son and spirit. All things are given to Jesus because he is the one from heaven united with God. And therefore, we read, any who receive, back to verse 33, whoever receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. This is saying whoever receives the testimony of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, sets his seal that God is true. He is saying Jesus is God. That was Jesus' claim. Any who receive his testimony set their seal that God is true. He is truth. He is faithful. What he has promised in that he promised to give a Messiah. Jesus is that one. Whoever receives the testimony seals that God is true. Now, let's finally just land our plane with the ground level response. In verse 36, we read, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Remember, John has been impressing a response upon us by demonstrating that Jesus is superior to every earthly institution. He is superior to the religious system of the day. He is superior to the, great, he is superior to the greatest earthly teachers that we have ever had. He is the one from heaven revealing himself to us. And now we have a choice. We believe and obey or we deny and disobey. And notice that obedience is necessarily connected to believing, which we see in scripture all throughout, but particularly in this passage here. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. What's the contrast to believing? You'd think whoever does not believe, but rather John says, whoever does not obey. Think because there is a necessary connection between belief and obedience. We, we believe and we obey. We obey because we love. Jesus demonstrates this for us. He says, I, I do all, the Father loves me because I do all that he has commanded. And he says, those who love me will obey my commandments. It's a certainty. Belief and obedience are tied together. To believe in this Jesus, to believe in the Jesus we have been reading about, to believe in the Jesus who has revealed himself to us is to commit to a life of joyful obedience, of joyful obedience to a savior who has condescended, who has had mercy upon us by lowering himself to the lowest of the low, becoming obedient to the death of the cross and he did this in order to save us and call us to this life of obedience so our lives in response must be marked by obedience a disciple is disciplined this is our response this is the necessary response and we see the kind of joyful life of obedience in the example we've seen in john the baptist remember that Look at his response. This is a life of joyful obedience. He knew exactly what God had given him, the task that God had given him to do. 
And when his time was up and the better voice was coming in, John was thrilled about the thought of decreasing so that Christ can increase. We are called to this life of joyful obedience. So we who believe in Christ are being called to a life where our identity is completely wrapped up in the glory of God. And I think we need constant moments of reorientation. Like this is the Christian life is always about moments of reorientation. It's like in Ephesians 4, how Paul says you've been made new and now uh, you need to walk in the path of holiness and discipline as is fitting for the new man. So it's like God has made you new. He has justified you. He has made you holy. Now live your whole life reorienting yourself to that reality. And we need moments of reorientation like this, times to, uh, that we are called back to this path of obedience. Times where we are called back to this path of commitment to confess our allegiance to Christ. And so I hope this is a time for us to really consider uh, maybe aspects of our life that would reflect more disobedience rather than obedience or aspects of our life that would reflect more begrudging discipleship rather than joyful discipleship. And in the community of God, we stir each other on to these realities. We provoke each other to love and good works. We provoke each other to set our affections upon Christ more and more.